Coming up on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast, a summertime update on sarcoidosis treatments and some research, all showing great promise in the fight against the disease. This is the Sark Fighter podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hello and welcome. This is episode 91 of the FSR Sark Fighter podcast. I'm your host, John Carlin. Episode 91 will be released on July 3rd here of 2023. So the following day is the 4th of July, lands on a Tuesday this year. A lot of people are making this a holiday week, and I hope that you have some time off, maybe uh, have a chance to get away or are away, and maybe you're listening to this during your travels, um, or maybe you uh, will listen when you get back. Um, I am actually working all week, having had uh, several times to get away already this summer, and, and one more week of vacation still to go, but that's coming up in August. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Let me tell you, this episode is brought to you by Atire Pharmaceuticals, who says on the heels of their successful Phase 2 clinical trial, Atire Pharma has launched a Phase 3 clinical trial on pulmonary sarcoidosis. This study will test whether efsofitamod will allow people to reduce the dose of steroids, say prednisone, that they are taking to treat their disease while maintaining symptom control and preserving lung function and I invite you to listen to episode 65 of the FSR Sark Fighter podcast with ATAR Farmers President and CEO, Dr. Sanjay Shukla, to learn more. And there is a link in the show notes to that clinical trial. And some of the research that was recently published by Sarcoidosis News does involve ATAR Pharmaceuticals, and I'll be getting to that a little bit later in the show today. Now, I want to tell you, I did have an interview scheduled with a patient today, but his doctor called and wanted to do some testing, of course, right during the time that we had set aside to do a podcast recording. Now, this eventually will happen, and it'll be an interesting case, something I think you'll want to hear about, as this patient apparently has what sounds like a fairly severe case of sarcoidosis. Uh, he tells me he had, he knew he had it in his lungs, and now it appears to have spread as well to his bones, and they're still in the testing phase. Uh, so he's taking big doses of prednisone, and this is a, a person who is just learning about his diagnosis and about sarcoidosis in general, and I always think that's an interesting perspective. Uh, he had emailed me, not having heard the podcast, but because he had seen my uh, recorded story on television where I sort of went public with my whole sarcoidosis diagnosis. Uh, he found me that way, and then I referred him to the podcast, and he wrote back, said, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, I didn't know all this was out there. He described himself as a newbie uh, because a lot of us who've um, who've been around sarcoidosis for a while, have learned the ropes, so to speak. Don't want to say we know everything, far from that, certainly. Uh, but we do know the ropes, and we can be somewhat conversant about sarcoidosis, and this is a person who's just learning that. But, you know, um, that that perspective is valuable, and I'm hoping that uh, that he'll still be able to come on and share his story, and that that'll be something that you find enjoyable to listen to. 
So in the meantime, I will give you just a couple of personal updates. I am continuing to do well on the combination of Humira and Imuran that I have been taking now for four years, three and a half years. Haven't had anything that feels like a flare coming on, so that's all good news. Um, and uh, But I do want to tell you that I've I recently had some some snafus, some miscommunication between my pharmacy and my doctor on another drug that I take, which is gabapentin. Uh, and that is something that, that you take, uh, I take because I have severe tingling caused by the neuropathy from the damage on my spinal cord that was done by the sarcoidosis and also by the biopsy, which is also something that we'll be looking at later in this podcast um, concerning the diagnosis of neurosarcoidosis. Some interesting developments on that front. But um, the bottom line is, is that my prescription ran out. So I saw that I had a couple of days worth of gabapentin left. I called it into the pharmacy. They said that my prescription had expired, but they would contact my doctor and they didn't expect any problem. So this goes on and I go to the pharmacy. It's not there. I wait a few more days. Uh, they say, all right, well, we're going to try again. And they actually sent a note right then. I don't know where they sent the note to. I have a feeling it was to the wrong physician. But anyway, they sent the note from the pharmacy. I go back in another two or three days, still no medication. So then I start calling. And even with a couple of phone calls, it took some time. But eventually, after about maybe four to five days, give or take, um, Without having had any gabapentin, uh, I was able to get that prescription refilled. But going those days without it is just a very hard stop, right? So I take that, I take four pills a day when I do what I'm supposed to do. Sometimes I, I only take three, but it's 1,600 milligrams per day, 400 per pill. And so when you're used to taking that every day and all of a sudden you just stop, um, the tingling comes back and I just felt off my whole, my whole body felt off. And I got to tell you that I, I was pretty miserable to be around for a couple of those days, including uh, a couple of very stressful days at work. And as you know, I'm a TV news anchor, uh, TV news reporter, um, here and there, my main job is anchoring the news and then I will do some special reports. But, um, so you may, you may find this humorous. I don't know. Um, so one of these days that I was there without the gabapentin was it was Channel 10 Day at the Salem Fair. And the Salem Fair is a huge fair. It's, on, it's, it's almost as big as some of the state fairs that you see around. And it's the largest free gate fair in the United States. So it doesn't, by free gate, that means it doesn't cost anything to get in. And once you get in, you know, they're hoping that you spend your money on your rides and your, the food and the games and all that. But it doesn't cost anything to walk through the gates. And it's, it's the largest one of its kind in the entire United States. So just giving you an example of, you know, the, the size of the event. So it's Channel 10 Day at the fair. And I am scheduled to be the reporter who will be doing live reports to promote Channel 10 Night at the fair. And so we had a, a thing at the, uh, at the front of the fair where if people brought in a couple pairs of socks, they would get a reduced price on their rides. Um, and so we were, we were promoting that. But in between, um, in between, they wanted me to go and find something fun that's going on at the fair 
that I could showcase in a, an approximately two-minute report. And so you got to understand that it's hot, all right? It's five o'clock in the afternoon. It's the temperatures in the 80s, upper 80s. The humidity is creeping in. We have terrible humidity here in Virginia this time of year. And you've got all this communication stuff on. You're hearing in your ears from the producers, and, and they want you to do a tease coming into a break, which means you have to get the cameraman uh, set up so you can stand there and say, coming up right after the break, we'll do thus and such here at the Salem Fair where it's Channel 10 night, yada, yada. And, and it doesn't sound like much, but it's very stressful. The fair is loud. Um, I've been the news anchor in this market pretty much since 1987, so a lot of people recognize me, and we're trying to get through the crowd and find something fun that we can do. We've got about 10 minutes to find something in between doing our live reports. So you're doing that, trying not to be rude to people. Hey, John, how you doing? Remember me? And of course, it's usually somebody I unfortunately don't remember, having met them once, you know, maybe at the fair. I was I was actually doing live reports at the very first Salem Fair in 1987, if that gives you any idea how long I've been doing this. So anyway, it's, it's just a little stressful. Well, the good news is, is we come across this booth, and you know that I love animals. Uh, and, I, you know, I think if I probably could have had any other job, I would have been like the guy on the Today Show who brings in the crazy animals and, and showcases them, um, you know, but, but that, that was not the job that was meant to be for me. But we find a booth and they've got some animals there from the, uh, at least the animal I wound up with was from the Orlando Zoo in Florida. And so they've got a couple of macaws, they've got a kangaroo, and they have um, a sloth, a two-toed sloth, and I've never seen a sloth. I have seen a sloth through the glass at uh, maybe the Bronx Zoo or something like that in New York. So I can't say I've never seen a sloth before. I've never seen one up close before. And the guy sees us. I've got my microphone in my hand, my Channel 10 logo on my shirt, and my cameraman. So we come walking up and say, can we do a live spot with one of your animals? And he's like, yeah, I'd love to do it. Love the promotion. And he said, what do you want? And oh, he had a, he had a boa constrictor. He said, you want to do the snake? I said, yeah, I'll do the snake. That sounds great. And the the, the snake was, might have been a python, I don't know. Um, but it was five, six feet long. And so I was, I'm not afraid of snakes. So I was prepared to stand there with the snake around my neck and do a live report with the snake. He says, or you can do the sloth. And I said, ooh, a sloth. Now that, that sounds like fun. So, and meanwhile, the producer is in my ear saying, okay, four minutes, four minutes. And we're still kind of figuring out where I'm going to stand with the sloth. Because this, this is a booth that's full of people. And the way they set it up is you can, you can go through the booth for free and see the animals. But if you want to have an interaction with the animal, then you have to pay. So what I'm going to actually do is an interaction with the sloth, which means I'm going to feed it a slice of carrot. Great. Um, I think that would have been 50 bucks if you wanted to pay for that privilege. But of course, he, he wants to promote his booth at the fair. So this guy is more than willing to just let us walk up out of the blue and do this. But we but it's loud, right? There's there's people all around and there's people saying, hey, look, Channel 10 is there. And there's people saying, oh, look at the macaw and look at the, you know, whatever, because it's, it's kind of fun and there's music playing and it's the midway and there's the Ferris wheel. So so you get what's going on. It's a it's a it's a big atmosphere. 
and my cameraman and I are trying to get set up so the sun's in the right place, and the guy's trying to brief me on the background of the sloth. It comes from such and such a country in South America, and it's from the Orlando Zoo, and uh, they live to be a certain number of age, and no, it's not dangerous, but you can only touch it while it's eating the carrot that you've just given it. This is how he's showing me how to feed it so I don't get bit, and he's wanting me to make sure that it doesn't reach out and use those two toes, which are basically long fingernails to like grab my arm and pull my hand closer it's not trying to hurt me what it wants is it wants me to feed it so anyway and the producer saying two minutes and the producer saying one minute so we finally get in position and the sun's on my face and and the guy who runs the booth is just off camera um, he actually he's just in the background but he's there so I can look to him and, and get a question answered if I need it about the sloth and I, I do my report and it goes quite well um, with the with the two-toed sloth um, but that I can tell you is stressful and it's stressful and I haven't had any gabapentin <laughs> and so it, it, it's not like just stopping taking prednisone where you really have a hair trigger, but you know, it's hot. I'm sweating. I'm trying to look good. I'm trying to think. I got the producer in my ear. The guy's giving me a briefing on this animal that I've never heard of before. People think of TV news and they think, oh, you know, live breaking from the scene and all of the stress that comes with that. And it's true, but the deadlines are the same, whether you're going to be doing a, a brief spot with a sloth <laughs> <laughs> or whether you're at the auto accident or the house fire or in front of the uh, of the state capitol, uh, you know, whatever it is, there's all this pressure that just comes with TV news because when you're on, you're on, and there's there's really nothing else that, you know, none of that can be adjusted. Like everybody back in the studio is, they've got the graphics in the right place. The anchor back in the studio is ready to toss to me. It's, you know, if, if you're supposed to go at 11 minutes after the hour, you're going at 11 minutes after the hour. And you better have something to say and you better be in place and the cameraman better be in place and you better have a signal and yada, yada, yada. So I, anyway, I'm probably over explaining that. But um, I just wanted to let you know um, what all I was doing during my days without my gabapentin. And, and whether it's gabapentin or whether it's one of the more serious drugs, it seems like there is just a never-ending series of cases where these medicines don't get renewed on time for whatever reason, for whatever reason. Sometimes the insurance company wants to make sure that you still need it, so they need your doctor to you know, reapply for it. And like in my case, I've talked about this on the podcast with Humira. Humira is not a drug that's commonly prescribed for sarcoidosis, and, so it gets, and it's expensive, so it gets rejected right up until the minute you're almost out. Um, so there's, there's just lots of different things, and I just thought I would share my, my sad story. Otherwise, I got to tell you, it's been, it's been a great summer so far. We're, uh, as I said, coming up on the 4th of July. Uh, my family went to the beach. There was all 15 of us uh, at the beach in one house, including um, all seven of my grandchildren, five and under. And that was a lot of people to be in one beach house, even though it was. Uh, we went to Holden Beach in North Carolina. Beautiful beach house. We paid the extra money and rented right on the beach. So we walked out our back door and there were the waves. And I mean, that is that is so, so cool. And this particular house had um, had very big bedrooms and a very small 
common area, which is like a living room, you know, where everybody would sit, watch TV, have your food, have your breakfast, whatever. Like the dining room was was sort of a, a dining room table next to the living room. So the bottom line is with 15 people and, and a lot of small children all in one space, you really couldn't get away from other people um, if you were in, in the house. And, you know, with the kids, the kids are just little. I mean, they're, they're just little. We have one infant under one, uh, and then a couple of two-year-olds, and a one-and-a-half-year-old. And, you know, children of that age, they don't communicate that well. Um, and so, you know, when they want something, they, they tend to whine or cry or, you know, whatever. Um, and everybody's bedtime uh, was, was uh, interrupted because of all the different things we had going on. So instead of going to bed, we'd all go out for ice cream. And, that, you know, it just so by the end of the week, we, we needed a little bit of space from each other, even though those are the people I absolutely love the most on Earth. Um, so a good beach vacation. I have more, more, many, many, many more happy memories and just a few anxiety ridden times during during that. And then you guys know I like to ride my bike. And I will tell you that in June, I challenged myself to average 100 miles a week. So 400 miles for the month. And we had one week where we're here. Here in Virginia, it was awful. Rain, uh, heavy rain, lots of wind, basically unrideable weather, uh, you know, unless you are really determined. So I lost a week and then had to make up those miles during the times when the weather was good, uh, basically the last week, week and a half. And uh, I'm just quite proud of myself that, that I did it. I managed to log 400 miles for June and now it's July and on the little tracker that I use to keep track of my miles, um, it, it registers with my GPS device, but basically a fancy speedometer on, on my bike. Um, I'm going to try and do 400 again, but I'm not going to I'm not going to kill myself. Like, I mean, I killed myself in in June and I also killed myself during a couple of those days when I didn't have any. And in my gabapentin, boy, I'm really making it sound like I have a bad life, but I don't. It's, uh, it's, these are first world problems, people. Um, and I, I really have had a great summer and I'm very, very blessed to be able to ride my bike, uh, even with the sarcoidosis diagnosis. And, and of course I just have my, my wonderful family. So anyway, uh, what I want to do here is I've been doing a little bit of research and I've, I've found a couple of, of reports that I'm going to share with you from Sarcoidosis News and that's something I subscribe to and that's coming up after the break. I feel like a zombie Just feeding at stumbling Hi, I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter Podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the Sarcoidosis Solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter Podcast. All right, welcome back. And as promised, I wanted to look at uh, two reports from Sarcoidosis News. 
and I want to uh, want to share these with you. Um, one of them has to do with efsafitamod, which is the drug that's being studied right now. We've talked about it a lot by Atar Pharma. And I will be reading to you directly from a sarcoidosis news report. And I want to make sure that I give you credit, that I give credit to the proper person at the bottom of this. And I, I will do that. Uh, but anyway, so, I, and I'm reading directly from the report here. So this is not my work. This is, this is the work that they have done. But they're reporting that scientists at ATAR Pharma, Pharma presented their findings at last month's American Thoracic Society 2023 International Conference in a poster entitled Exposure, Efficacy, Analysis, Supports Proof of Concept for Efsofitamod in Pulmonary Sarcoidosis. Fancy way of saying that uh, so far the research is looking good. And then there's a quote here. And it reads, our presence at this year's ATS is an important opportunity for ATAR to feature the research we've generated that further support Efsofitamod as a next-generation immunomodulator with the potential to be transformative disease-modifying therapy. That's attributed to Sanjay Shukla, MD, and he's the president and CEO of ATAR. And that's directly from the company press release. So then the report continues, researchers used findings from the study combined with pharmacological data collected in a prior phase one trial involving healthy volunteers to conduct an exposure efficacy known as an EE analysis. And thankfully, it says in simplest terms, this type of analysis tests whether the different levels of a medication in the patient's system, referred to as a person's exposure to the drug, are tied to a therapeutic effect that is any more or less pronounced. And the results suggested a positive EE response. So patients with higher exposure to efsofitamod generally experienced greater improvements in their lung function score and a greater reduction in steroid use. So this is me talking again. That, that kind of means that it's working. The more efsafitamide you take, the better off you're doing, okay? The analysis also suggested that patients giving higher doses of the experimental medication more often experience clinically meaningful improvements in lung function scores. And still going with the sarcoidosis news report, Quote, these preliminary findings of a positive EE response across multiple clinically relevant endpoints support the claim that efsofitamod displays efficacy in pulmonary sarcoidosis, the researchers concluded. And ATIRE is now running a phase three trial called EFSOFIT. We've talked about that here on the podcast, aiming to test two doses of efsofitamod, either three or five milligrams per kilogram of body weight against a placebo. And they're doing that in 264 adults with pulmonary sarcoidosis. And the trial is still enrolling patients at sites across the United States and in Europe and Japan, slated for completion in January of 2025. So that is the first report. And it was compiled by Marisa Wexler, MS, again for Sarcoidosis News. Now I want to tell you about the second, and this has to do with neurosarcoidosis, which is what I suffer from. Um, and it is, you know, even in a rare disease, this is a, 
a small corner of the disease, if you will. And also, Sarcoidosis News reporting this, that only one in six people get a definite neurosarcoidosis diagnosis, according to a study. These study findings confirm that a biopsy, which is invasive, is the most valuable test. And this is by Steve Bryson, Ph.D., who holds a that degree in biochemistry from the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto, Canada. He's been a medical scientist for 18 years. He's worked in both the academic and industry sides, and his research is focused on the discovery of new vaccines and medicines to treat inflammatory disorders and infectious diseases. Steve is a published author in multiple peer-reviewed scientific journals, and he's also a patented inventor. So what they were looking at in this test is if someone is suspected of having neurosarcoidosis, what's the best way to confirm it? And this is speaking directly to me because I have had mine confirmed, and but I had to pay a pretty big price to have that happen because they opened up my spinal uh, open, basically open spinal cord surgery, if you will, and went in because they could see on MRIs that I had this big mass on my spinal cord, but they didn't know what it was. And so in order to figure it out, they go in and they took a little piece of it and, in my opinion, damaged my spinal cord doing that. So the good news is I know what I have. It's sarcoidosis. So now we can start the proper treatment. The bad news is, is that you know, now I've got this neuropathy that I talked about earlier in the podcast. And so what they were looking at in this study is for people like me, is it better because it is invasive to do uh, an actual biopsy or is it better to use all of the other indicators and come to a conclusion? And so I will again be reading to you from the Sarcoidosis News that says, Despite advances in testing, fewer than one in every six people evaluated for suspected neurosarcoidosis, neurosarcoidosis affecting the nervous system, received a definite diagnosis of the inflammatory disorder. This is according to a 30-year study in Sweden. A confirmed neurosarcoidosis diagnosis in these cases was made only following a tissue biopsy of the central nervous system, which is what I had, comprised of the brain and spinal cord. Most of the other cases were classified as either probable or possible neurosarc based on the consistent signs and symptoms. Meanwhile, one quarter of the individuals tested were confirmed to have another disease based on their biopsy results. These findings confirm a tissue biopsy as the most valuable test to resolve a suspected case of neurosarcoidosis. However, the researchers emphasize that the test's invasive nature and associated health risks continues to limit its use. And I don't know which way I would argue. Should you do the biopsy? Should you not do the biopsy? I guess you need to know, but at what cost? So the, the article continues, since 2007, the employment of a structured laboratory and imaging approach and the increasing number of biopsies have facilitated and improved the process of correct, correct attribution in patients with presumptive neurosarcoidosis, especially in patients with isolated neurological lesions, the researchers wrote, which is, again, exactly what I had. The researchers wrote, nonetheless, noting the lack of reliable biomarkers for the disease. 
And so I'll put a link to this, but it was a study called A Comprehensive Diagnostic Approach in Suspected Neurosarcoidosis was published in the journal Nature Scientific Reports. And it says in up to 15% of cases, the disease affects the nervous system and is then known as neurosarc. This rare form of sarcoidosis can be difficult to diagnose because it presents a wide range of nonspecific symptoms and laboratory and MRI findings that can also be caused by other diseases. So you look at it on the MRI and you're not sure what it is. And it could be neurosarc, but it could be other stuff. That may include, and here they list it, may include not only neurological and autoimmune diseases such as multiple sclerosis, which I was tested for, neuromyelitis optica, uh, neuromyelitis optica, spectrum disorder, lupus, and then uh, Strogan syndrome. I don't know if I said that right. Uh, there are also, uh, also infections and certain types of cancer. They can all look the same when you're looking at an MRI or other imaging. Now, given these complexities, the article continues, a team of investigators at Uppsala University Hospital in Sweden sought to describe their experience in diagnosing neurosarcoidosis, and their aim is to, quote, highlight the ongoing challenges focusing on the diagnostic workup. I hope you're staying with me here because I, th I think this is fascinating and I'm trying to give you clarifications where I think I can without deviating from the, the true science here. All right, so the story continues. The researchers identified 90 people with suspicion of neurosarc from 1990 to 2021. 60% were classified as having probable neurosarc, 40% as having probable Oh, 60% possible neurosarc, 40% probable neurosarc. However, a biopsy of CNS tissue revealed an alternative diagnosis in 24 patients, so that's 26% initially classified as possible neurosarc. And so then the researchers focused their analysis on the remaining 66 patients, and for the record it was 35 women and 31 men, their age at symptom onset was between 35 and 60 years, with a median age of 49. A quarter were smokers, and nearly half were initially treated for a medical emergency. The symptoms related to cranial neuropathies, or damage to nerves that control muscles and sensation in the head and neck, were the most common. That's me. Of those, the optic nerve, which relays signs between the eyes and brain, was most likely to be affected. That was not me. The other common early symptoms included movement problems, 32%, headache, 16%, pituitary or hypothalamic dysfunction, 12%, and the pituitary gland and the hypothalamus, they just uh, said, are two brain regions commonly affected by neurosarcoidosis. Nonspecific symptoms were also noted, which included vision and hearing problems, vertigo, nausea, chronic fever, seizures, confusion, cognitive impairment, hallucinations, and sexual dysfunction. The peripheral nervous system comprising the nerves outside the brain and spinal cord was affected in three patients. So then, overall, 14 patients, 21%, were classified as having definite neurosarcoidosis, 32 were marked as probable sarcoidosis, and 20 patients as possible. 
the high number of patients with probable and possible diagnosis versus only 21% of cases with definite neurosarc reflect real-world data, the team concluded. And they said because the biopsy is invasive, diagnosis, quote, relies on how well the clinician interprets the likelihood of differential diagnosis based on the patient's history, clinical findings, results of neuroimaging, and CSF and blood analysis. So basically, at the end of the day, they were able to confirm that out of that entire group, only 21% had actual, one in six, had actual neurosarcoidosis. So that means, if I'm reading this correctly, that there were a lot of people that they said were probable or possible for neurosarc, but of that number, only a small percentage actually had neurosarc, which might suggest that if you're really trying to diagnose somebody, you've got to go in and do the biopsy. And But when you do a biopsy and it's neurosarc, you're looking at touching somebody's spinal cord. You're looking at touching somebody's brain. And that's highly invasive, and it's very dangerous, and it kind of is a snapshot of where we are right now. Wouldn't it be great if you could just do a blood test, and it would come back and say, okay, you've got sarcoidosis in your body, and by the way, your MRI shows that you've got this big lesion on your spinal cord, and between that and your blood test and these other markers we're looking at, we're pretty sure that what you have is sarcoidosis. We don't have to go in and open you up. We can just tell. Well, right now, it doesn't sound, doesn't sound like that's the case. And if I have the opportunity to get another clinician on, um, and you know, maybe I'll even reach out <clears throat> to the author of this report in Canada, uh, maybe, maybe we can shed some more light on that. And uh, Because once, once you start looking at, at these big medical terms and, and these methodologies and so forth, um, I'm a layperson. Uh, one of my jobs as a TV reporter is to take very complicated things and make it simple for people so they can understand it. But there's always the hazard of oversimplifying or when you simplify something or round out something, um, you you miss the point or you hit something that's just slightly beside the actual point of the study. And I, you know, I don't want to do that. That's why I was reading that to you directly today. Uh, but the bottom line is is that uh, uh, over 30 years, they've studied neurosarcoidosis patients, and they, they looked at uh, what they know versus what they think they know, and it's, it's not as good as one would hope. I hope you found this interesting. Uh, this is a, a bit of a July break, um, a bit of a summer break for the podcast, but I did find these two studies, and I just thought that they would be some food for thought while you're driving around, working out, or doing whatever it is you do when you uh, listen to the podcast. The official Sark Fighter song is called Zombie by Mark Steyer and the White Hot Lizards. Mark's story is the story behind the lyrics, and you can hear that way back in episode 12. We release this podcast every other Monday. As I'm speaking today, my trusty dog, Dougal, is cheating on me. He is not curled up in the chair in my office because, once again, my wife Mary is working in her office, and whenever that's the case, he chooses Mary. I'm going to say it's because the couch in the office is more comfortable than the chair in my office, and that is why he's there. 
but that's probably not true. He probably just likes her better. (laughs) The backstory to the founding of the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research can be heard in Episode 11 with Andrea and Redding Wilson. I suggest you give that a listen. You can follow the Sark Fighter on social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram. I'm even on Peloton as Sark Fighter. And my cycling blog is called Carl and the Cyclist, and that has a section about cycling with sarcoidosis. And a lot of people are fitness-oriented who seem to find themselves with Sark and maybe my episodes riding my bike and dealing with sarcoidosis and all the medicines will be something that you can find helpful or enlightening in one way or another. If you're new here and you're just trying to figure out what sarcoidosis is, you Googled, you found sarcoidosis, you found a sarcoidosis podcast, well, go back and listen to episode two with Dr. Simon Hart. That's where we sort of go over sarcoidosis 101. And if you want to know my story, I laid it all out for you in episode one. If you'd like to contact me, and I love it when people write to me, send me an email. I read every single one of them, carlinagency at gmail.com. There's a link in the show notes. It helps me reach more people and grow the show if you share it on your social media. And more important, if you like it, just tell one person. So subscribe, give the show a nice review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your downloads. Hope you have a great summer, and until next time, keep fighting.